It's always a privilege to gather together with Christ's church on the Lord's Day. And among all the things we do when we gather together, it is particularly a privilege to open the Word together. Whether from the pew beside you or from behind the pulpit, it is just always a privilege to be able to study God's Word together. So let's do that now by turning together to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. This morning we will be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm excited for us to look at this passage together this morning because the Lord's been using this text, really all of the book of 1 Thessalonians, to lovingly work me over the past year. In particular, as I've been reading it and just observing, observing Paul, his heart, his sincerity in this letter, what drives him, as I've been reading it and observing those things, and then simultaneously, the Lord's been helping me to see my own heart in various situations throughout life, situations I know he wisely and lovingly tailors for this very purpose, and helping me to see the great discrepancy between those two, where Paul's heart is so often and then where mine is so often. It's been painful, but good. And so knowing how the Lord has wonderfully used this passage in my life, I'm eager to share it with you. We often think about the way that Paul communicates to us and calls us to obedience in his letters being primarily through imperatives, primarily through commands, and surely there are plenty of imperatives and commands in Paul's letters. But I've recently been struck by how often Paul seems to instruct us, not only through commands, but just through transparency, through sharing with us his own life, opening himself up, as it were. And he does this by providing a model for us. He did it first to provide a model for those churches to whom he wrote. And that shouldn't surprise us. Isn't this exactly what he says is his purpose? First Corinthians he says, follow me as I follow Christ. Or in Philippians chapter 1, verse 9, he writes, What you have learned and what you have received and what you have heard and what you have seen in me, he says, practice these things. So Paul's explicit that modeling is one of his chief means of teaching. Let me show you a sampling of Paul's heart that is so compelling, just from the book of First Thessalonians. You're welcome to follow along as we go, um, but you're welcome just to listen. First chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, Paul writes regarding the church and to the church, We always thank God for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. He loves them. Constantly keeping in mind your work of faith and labor of love and perseverance of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Or in chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, just a bit beyond where we'll be this morning, he writes, But we proved to be gentle or infants among you as a nursing mother 
Think about that metaphor he uses. As a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children, in the same way we had a fond affection for you, and we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, he says, because you had become very dear to us. Or a little later in chapter 2, verse 11, you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Or chapter 2, verse 17. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager, with great desire, to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you? In the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming, for you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we sent you Timothy, he says. And then finally, in chapter 3, verse 6, But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account, as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may be able to see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Wow! Paul loved the bride of Christ. His heart was committed to the mission, the mission that she would be adorned with good works, with righteousness, that she would be fruitful. And it might be easy for us to not feel the weight of Paul's model because we don't seriously consider Paul to be a realistic model for us. One reason we might not seriously consider Paul to be a realistic model for us is because we might consider him to be superhuman, but Paul wasn't superhuman. Paul was a fallen sinner just like us. He had a new heart given to him by the Lord, just like you if you are in Christ have. He had the Spirit given to him to enable him, just like you if you are in Christ have. Another reason we might dismiss Paul as a realistic example for us is, well, he was an apostle. And indeed, there's something to that. His apostolic role is a bit unique, but that did not keep Paul from regularly putting himself forward as a model. And Paul's love for Christ's church and Paul's concern for her fruitfulness is something that is not 
uniquely apostolic. Now, before we jump into chapter 2, let me set the context for us. It's wonderful to be in the flow of exposition, as we normally are with Pastor Farrell teaching us through the book of Romans. It's wonderful because we're in the flow of it. We know the context, and we're able to jump right in. But we don't have that this morning, so we need to take just a moment to set the, set the context, orient ourselves before we do jump in. It was on Paul's second missionary journey that he planted the church in Thessalonica. After he left the Jerusalem council with the decision they had made, he headed north, first to Antioch and then beyond into Asia Minor. And he delivered that message, uh, the message of the Jerusalem council. And this area in Asia Minor was where he went on his first missionary journey. So as he's traveling through there, he's seeking to see how they're doing, encourage them, and just make sure they're doing well, edify them however he can. And then as he finishes up there, he proceeds on out of Asia Minor from the northwest corner into Europe. And the first place he comes to is to Philippi. So he takes time there to, to plant a church, get some converts, plants a church. But he's quickly facing opposition there. Uh, the people are upset with some of the things he's doing and the way it's affecting their economy. And so they uh, attack him, bring him before the local authorities, beat him, and then send him out of town. And then he moves on, passing through a couple more places before stopping in Thessalonica. And then he plants the church there, according to his usual method of first going into the synagogue and sharing with the people there, the, the Jews there and the God-fearing Gentiles, that the one they've been looking forward to as the Messiah of the Old Testament has come in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. But some of those believe. Others who don't believe become angry and end up opposing Paul and those who are following him, those who support him like Jason, and he's driven out of there as well. So he quickly goes on to Berea, and then from Berea on to Athens. And now in Athens, he's concerned for this church. He only had a couple weeks, maybe a couple months, we don't know exactly how long, to be there with them after their conversion to build them up. That's a young church left without any other real instruction or guidance. So he's concerned. We see his deep concern for them. So he sends Timothy, says it's better for us to be left here alone and send Timothy back to see how they're doing because of his deep concern for them. So Timothy goes, Timothy checks up on them, and Timothy returns to him either while he's still in Athens or at his next stop, which was in Corinth, and gives an update. Timothy's report was a wonderful report. He reports that the people in Thessalonica, the believers there, are continuing to faithfully follow Christ and Paul says, in essence, nothing could bring him more joy than that. But the Thessalonian believers are being persecuted. And, and as you might imagine, that's a burden to Paul. He knows that that can often be a temptation to falling away. So he is concerned for them that they persevere. He also hears that people outside the church are slandering Paul's character. They're taking the facts and trying to spin them in a way that makes Paul look bad with the intention of unsettling this new church which they're opposing. And all the indications we have suggest that those were coming from outside and the people within the church hadn't yet bought into it. But Paul hears about this and he's concerned to dispel those confusions. And Timothy also reports that there's some measure of theological confusion that he hopes to address, Paul does. So 
Paul writes a letter. Timothy's come back, brought this report, and Paul decides to write a letter back to them to address some of these things. First, he shares with them his thanksgiving to God for the good report about how they're flourishing in Christ. Then, in chapter 2, he turns to addressing the slander, clarifying his motivations. In particular, he notes, everything they're saying is contrary to what you knew. I lived an open life before you for some time, and and you, you know what I was doing. So he writes this letter. And as he defends his motives, he provides for us wonderful insight into thinking about our own motives. Think about that. Paul is taking time to say, I wasn't doing these things, but this is what I was being motivated by. What a wonderful gift for us to hold up as a model and compare our own motives against. And he does this in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And that section can be broken into four sections. Verses 1 and 2 first then verses uh, 3 through 4, then verses 5 through 8, and the fourth section is verses 8 through 12. I wish we had time this morning to look at all 12 verses, but for the sake of time, we're going to limit ourselves to the first four verses. Follow along as I read verses 1 through 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul writes, For you yourselves know, brethren, our coming to you, that it was not lacking in sincerity. But although we had suffered beforehand and been shamefully mistreated in Philippi, just as you know, despite that, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our appeal to you was not from an intention to deceive, nor from improper motives, nor with deceptive methods, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. So in these verses, Paul pulls back the curtain of his heart, as it were, and we can learn from this a lot about sincere motives. We can learn a lot from this glimpse of Paul's heart about sincere motives. And we can organize what we learn here about sincere motives into two tests. Two tests for our motives. We could say Paul's defense of his motives provides us with two tests for our motives. And the first... When our service is properly motivated, we will persevere through difficulty. When our service is properly motivated, we will persevere through difficulty. So persevering in difficulty will be that first test. Now notice that verses... 1 and 2 are structured in such a way that they begin with a negative, what his motives are not, before turning to the positive, saying what his motives are. Not this, but that. Our coming to you was not lacking in sincere motives, but we were bold to speak to you the gospel. 
Thus, Paul begins by denying first before he affirms what really is in his heart. We were not this, but we were that. What Paul denies is that when he and Silvanus and Timothy, his companions in this work, came to Thessalonica to plant that church, he denies that they were lacking in sincere motives. Some translations give the sense that Paul's claiming that his visit wasn't lacking in results. The idea being it wasn't lacking in fruit. The word's a fairly generic one, referring simply to being empty or lacking. And indeed, Paul uses it a number of times with this application, referring to lacking in in fruit, lacking in results. But Paul also uses it elsewhere, and it was used far beyond Paul at other points, to refer to other things lacking, such as integrity or sincerity. And in this particular context, it's pretty clear he doesn't have in view fruitfulness or results because when he goes to the positive, it wasn't this, but it was this, he says nothing about the measure of fruitfulness. He doesn't say it wasn't in vain, but it was very fruitful. He says it wasn't lacking in sincerity, but we did it with sincerity. We, we boldly proclaimed to you the word of God. So that seems to be the intention he has here. The concern, the positive side here, is that um, he, he does have sincerity. It wasn't lacking in sincerity. In fact, their sincerity is the focus through all the way through verse 12, the end of verse 12, with results, as in fruit, not being mentioned at all. And then in verse 2, he turns to the positive side. But, marking that transition, although we had suffered beforehand, had been shamefully mistreated in Philippi, just as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God among much opposition. So he notes that their actions, in spite of their circumstances, testify to their sincerity. Their actions, in spite of their circumstances, testify to their sincerity. In other words, their circumstances make their actions very surprising, noteworthy, something we don't expect. What were these contrary circumstances? What happened in Philippi? Luke records this event for us in Acts chapter 16. While they were in Philippi, talking with people about the gospel, the crowds turned against them, against him and against Silas, and began attacking them. They brought them before the city authorities and accused them, and they were stripped and beaten with rods. Luke says beaten very severely, put in stocks, and thrown into prison. Then the next day they were released. And where do they go from there but to Thessalonica? What happened in, Thessal in Philippi, as Luke records, it seems to be exactly what Paul has in view here when he says that they had suffered beforehand and been shamefully mistreated in Philippi. The sufferings that they suffered beforehand seem to be the beatings, and the shameful mistreatment could refer to the beatings as well. It could refer to having been stripped and then put into the stocks. The shameful mistreatment focuses on the indignity of their treatment. In fact, one ancient Greek author, Demosthenes, notes that a humane person does not treat even a slave in the way described by this word. That's why, if you remember the story, the city leaders, the authorities, the magistrates, were so concerned 
when they found out that Paul was a Roman citizen to whom they had done this. And being that it's right at that time, leaving Philippi, having been beaten in this way, that they go to Thessalonica, that he can say, just as you know. It wasn't hidden. It's not some tale that he tells from the past. They must have been quite the sight showing up into Thessalonica. He doesn't tell us exactly what they look like, but likely with black eyes, maybe still walking with a limp. They've been beaten, and everyone can notice this. And it's in light of these circumstances that their bold proclamation of the gospel is surprising. And it is bold indeed. When, when Paul says it was bold, he doesn't mean that they were being obnoxious or boisterous or rude or harsh. It means they didn't back off in their zeal to proclaim Christ. It would be quite understandable if they decided to take a bit of a break, to nurse, nurse their wounds a little bit, get back some of their energy, but they didn't. Furthermore, Paul tells us it wasn't only in Philippi that they had encountered this kind of treatment, but notice the end of verse 4. We were bold, sorry, end of verse 2, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. So all of that opposition is continuing even in Thessalonica. And so, Paul's sincerity of motive is evident in his perseverance through difficulty. And likewise, when our service is properly motivated, we too will persevere through difficulty. Now, when I say persevere through difficulty, let me clarify what I mean. I don't necessarily mean carrying on through difficult times in life. Surely we have to do that sometimes, but that's not primarily what I have in view here. I specifically have in view what I think Paul had in view. Sticking to our laboring for fruitfulness in the making and maturing of disciples. That is the perseverance that Paul has in view here. Now, this requires that we have an overarching concern for that thing. For fruitfulness in the mission that Christ has left his church. There's going to be a disconnect for you if the making and maturing of disciples, if fruitfulness in the church isn't a significant concern to you, if you come here just to get a little pick-me-up to give you encouragement for the week, if you come here just for a little a therapeutic shot, and if you are not bought into the mission Christ left his church and using the gifts he has given you to that end, this is not going to make sense. Why would you do that? Because in that case, Christ is simply a servant to you to improve your life. But when we understand what Paul's after, that we're really following Christ, we have taken up our cross and followed Christ, and this is the concern that drives us. Sure, we do all kinds of other things. We, we have a profession. We, we put food on the table. But this is the concern that drives you, that people would come to know Christ, that they would be built up, that his church in which you've been placed would be growing increasingly mature because of your contributions to it. Then we can understand what Paul's talking about. If the sincerity of your motives was to be judged on the basis of your perseverance in difficulty, on the basis of your persevering 
in serving the Lord and serving the church through difficulty, even when that involves hardship, how would you score? What are the kinds of things that make serving in the midst of difficulty difficult? Compared to Paul's circumstances, the kinds of things that we might think of seem comparatively small. Now, we've got to be clear that there are difficulties involved, even when serving within the church. Paul has in view primarily the difficulties encountered in proclaiming the gospel to unbelievers that he might plant churches. But even when we are serving the Lord by serving one another within the context of the local church, there are indeed difficulties. We must not be under the delusion that the church is perfect. We are an interesting bunch. In many ways, it's, it's wonderful, it's glorious. We are new creations. The, the new creation that is in the future has already broken into the present. Where? Where do we see the new creation of the future breaking into the present? In the inner man, in the lives of believers as they are being transformed. That's why Paul can say we are new creatures. We are being renewed day by day. But if there's room for more renewal for us tomorrow, then that means there's going to be problems we encounter with one another because we aren't yet glorified today. Just the reality. We aren't perfect. To use the language often used today, there are risks. There are risks in being a part of a local church and pouring yourself into serving that church. As it's often said, there's a risk of being hurt. People will be unkind. And the more we draw close to people intentionally seeking to build relationships, the more frequently and deeply we will know the pain that can come from those relationships. But that risk is worth taking. I think of the words of John Piper in one of his early books regarding missions. He says, risk is right. Our gut reaction is to say, avoid risk. But that's not what Christ calls us to. Risk is not bad. Risk is, in fact, implied in the responsibility to take up our cross as we follow Christ. Withdrawing from people to keep ourselves safe is not an option in the local church. I love the honesty of Paul in Ephesians 4, in those opening verses. He says, let's jump into verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience. Note that. Wherever there's a need for patience, there's a reason patience is needed. With patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Think about how Paul says that. He, he's not having this idealistic view of the church. He's basically saying, sometimes, brothers and sisters in the church, we've got to put up with one another. And we do it motivated by love. And he continues, being diligent, another indication that this isn't easy, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul is simply honest about life in the church. Patience is required with other people when they provoke us. 
And Paul does not permit a good riddance attitude. He calls us to respond with patience. Paul says that sometimes we simply have to tolerate one another. And that requires love for them. Notice, though, he doesn't call us to run from that. He calls us to lean into it with love, not running away from it. The risk that people will be unkind to us is a risk we must take. And if our motives in serving are for Christ's glory and the building up of his church, if that's what's driving us, we won't run from such risks. We will embrace them and persevere in the grace the Lord provides. Another risk that might come to us, another difficulty in persevering and serving the Lord, maybe that your, your labors, your work, will go unrecognized or will go unappreciated. <laughs> it's not only a possibility, it's, it's a reality. It's going to happen, but it's simply a kind test of the Lord for our motives. If we're rightly motivated, we will be able to persevere in suffering. Difficulty of all sorts will test our motives, but when we are rightly motivated, we will pursue the mission. We will persevere in pursuing the mission. So in verses 1 and 2, Paul points to evidence that they were not lacking in sincerity of motives. And then in verses 3 and 4, he explains what was motivating them. So verses 1 and 2, here's evidence that our sincerity is not lacking, but what was it then that was making us sincere? What were our genuine motives? He's going to show us now in verses 3 and 4. So the second test of our motives is when our service is properly motivated, faithfulness as judged by God will be our chief concern. Faithfulness as judged by God will be our chief concern. Again, we see the structure that's parallel to verses 1 and 2. Paul starting with the negative, not this, and then moving to the positive. But this is the way it really was. In verse 3, is the negative, he negates three things that aren't true, and then verse 4 is the positive. And then we even see another one of these little not this but this structures at the end of verse 4, where he says, not as pleasing men, but pleasing God who tests our hearts. So beginning in verse 3, Paul begins with the negative, what was not true about his motives. First, their appeal exhortation, encouragement might be the way some of your translations have it. This most likely refers to the proclamation of the gospel, a call, an appeal to submit to Christ, to follow Christ. That appeal, he says, was not motivated by an, an intention to deceive anyone. Second, he says, their appeal was not motivated by impure motives. This is a general term and could probably encompass a number of things, but it seems contextually the most likely thing was probably greed. The idea, the accusation being that Paul's coming in here trying to drum up support from some wealthy citizens, making them his patrons. And then thirdly, he moves on from 
motivations, what was driving him to his methods, and says they didn't use deception. They didn't use trickery. Now, having told us what he was not motivated by in verse 3, he tells us what he was motivated by in verse 4. And he mentions two interrelated motivations. What motivated Paul was a knowledge of the responsibility entrusted to him and a desire to please him in that. A knowledge of the responsibility entrusted to him and a desire to please him in that. Really, the main statement of this verse is, so we speak. And what precedes it is the basis or the incentive for speaking, and what follows it is likewise the basis or the incentive for speaking. First, Paul was motivated by the recognition that he was entrusted by God with a responsibility. We have not been entrusted with the very same responsibility Paul was. But we surely have been entrusted with a responsibility by and before God. You say, how? And what is that responsibility? Paul maybe had a Damascus Road experience. He did. Paul says in Galatians 1, I think verse 9, that he he received the gospel by revelation from God. We haven't received that. So in what sense do we have a responsibility entrusted to us. First, consider that the Holy Spirit has graciously given to every believer a spiritual gift or spiritual gifts. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, those gifts have not been given to us that we may use them on ourselves, that we may advance our own aims, our own agendas, Those gifts have been given to us so that we might serve and so that we might build up his church. And the metaphor of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is particularly helpful because he makes clear that these gifts aren't simply something that we can choose to use or not to use. Today maybe I'll do that, tomorrow maybe not. But the church depends upon us using them. Every other member suffers when certain members don't use them. A jack-of-all-trades is not dependent upon anyone. He can take care of it all. A specialist is. He can only do his narrow thing, and if other things have to be done for his survival, he depends upon other people to do it. And the metaphor used by Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 indicates that we as believers are not a jack-of-all-trades. We are specialists, and we depend upon one another. Think about the metaphor he uses, a mouth. Mouth can only do certain things. In fact, without a hand to feed the mouth, the mouth will starve. The mouth depends upon the other parts of the body. And the same is true with us. And if one part the Lord's gifted to function in a certain way fails to do that task, it's obvious that the whole body will suffer. So, as we consider the ways in which you have been entrusted with the responsibility by God, the first way is that you've been gifted by God to serve his church. He has entrusted to you that responsibility to use that or those gifts. Your gifting is one of the ways Christ provides for his church with what she needs. 
Second, consider Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4 is a passage we often turn to around here because of its significance for explaining the New Testament plan for how ministry is to be structured, how it's to be done. And according to verses 11 and 12, Christ has given pastor teachers to the church so that they will equip the rest of the body to do the work of the ministry. Those of you who've been around here for a while understand that concept, but that might be a bit new for some of you because we're, we're used to hearing in much of Christian culture out there that pastors are the ministers and they do the work of the ministry. But Ephesians 4 indicates that surely they're involved in service, doing ministry, but primarily that's channeled in the direction of equipping the rest to do that work. So the building up of the body depends on each one of the members having been equipped and then using that equipping in doing the work of the ministry. Because it's that work of the ministry that contributes to the building up of the body. If certain body members aren't playing a part in that, the whole body suffers again. This time, not necessarily because of not using their gifting, but because of not using the equipping they've been given. Therefore, a second way in which you have been entrusted with responsibility is that you are receiving equipping for the purpose of serving the body. And the body depends upon you using that for its growth. So each of us have been gifted. Each of us have been equipped to contribute to the growth of the church. And therein is an entrustment of responsibility for the mission, for contributing to the church. We have, every one of us, a responsibility to fulfill, as did Paul. And we should be motivated by a concern to be faithful in that responsibility. That is a proper motivation. So if at the beginning of verse 4, Paul talks about this motivation of having been approved and entrusted with the gospel, then in the second half of the verse, he talks about another motivation. We speak, he says, not because we want to please men, but because we want to please God. Now, when it comes to how we think about our motives, I think there could hardly be a more persistent, a more perennial, a more frequent theme or topic than the fear of man versus the fear of God. In so many ways, this feels like the core of struggling through our motivations. And the desire to please people can be so subtle. It so regularly creeps in. And it's, it's never simply a matter of all this or all that. Even when our motives are seemingly, in the majority inclined toward pleasing God, surely, at least the testimony of my own heart would be that there is still mixed in there a concern to please men. And oh, it would be so easy to say, small stuff, 
What do these things matter? Have you not watched the news? The world is burning down. And you're concerned about pleasing men versus God? If we're doing the same actions, isn't God pleased? Motives matter. We can do the right thing, but do it to please men? And is that worship? Yeah, it is worship, but it's not worship of the Lord. It's idolatry. Motives matter. And this is one of the most fundamental areas in which we are regularly guilty of idolatry. Furthermore, not only is it simply a matter of what we're motivated by and the Lord being pleased in that, but we won't be able to faithfully fulfill our responsibility that's been entrusted to us, as we saw earlier in verse 4, when we're motivated by something as weak and flimsy and changing as the fear of man, as a desire to please people. It's only the desire to please God that will give us stability and consistency in that mission. Now, there's so much more that could be said, that should be said, far more than we could possibly put into one sermon. So I can't say it here, but I want you to to consider these things if you haven't. So I'm going to direct you to some resources. About a year ago, uh, during a fall equipping class last fall, Clay Mackey did a equipping class on the fear of God and the fear of man. Spent six weeks working through that. So if, if, this isn't, if you didn't attend that class, haven't thought deeply about this matter, I would strongly encourage you, go onto the website, go onto the app, and look up the recordings of that. I'm assuming they're there. Uh, if they aren't, I'm sure the ones from the Boundless, when he preached it in Boundless, are there. And another resource, a second one, would be a book by Lou Priolo called Pleasing People. Lou Priolo, Pleasing People. I would encourage you to check those resources out to tease out this very theme of being motivated by fear of God, by by a desire to please God. So how are you doing in the area of motives? Having examined your heart in light of Paul's example How's your heart doing? What's the score from those tests that we can derive from his example? First, do you persevere through difficulty in your service? Or are you easily discouraged? Are you easily inclined to give up? Are you quick to that good riddance attitude? I've done all these things and they don't seem appreciative or, or if that's what it's going to cost to serve, then I'm not going to be involved in there. Or I've been hurt by people in the church. This is a caveat. There could be very significant issues there, but um, sometimes that simply means people have offended me. I have refused to deal with that as the Lord has called me to allow that to grow into a bitterness. And by by addressing it, by seeking to reconcile with people, we're put back on the right path to, to be serving the Lord and to be working alongside those people, pulling together rather than opposing one another. Do you stay on mission or do you falter? That question is a window into our motivations. 
Second, is your chief concern that God will be pleased as you are faithful to your responsibility within the church? Is your chief concern that God will be pleased as you are faithful to your responsibility within the church? With that question, I'm essentially bringing together those last two motivations from verse 4. So Paul gives us two tests for our motives. Number one, when our service is properly motivated, we will persevere through difficulty, which we saw in verses 1 and 2. And then number two, when our service is properly motivated, faithfulness as judged by God will be our chief concern. As we noted at the beginning, Paul can sometimes seem superhuman. And sometimes, maybe always, when we begin to put our life beside Paul's, can be a bit discouraging because inevitably, it seems we fall short. But there's grace. There's grace on two fronts. One, when we fall short and we're fearing man, we're seeking to please men, we have wrong motives, we are deceptive. The Lord's eager to pardon his people for those things. He does pardon his people for those things. So there's grace in the sense of pardon, of forgiveness, for the many ways that we fall short in this. But also, there's grace in helping us to grow, to mature, to be transformed. For our motives to become more closely aligned with this model and thereby for us to be more useful. For us not to be so distracted and having our affections pulled away with all of the things that so quickly glimmer and sparkle and draw our attentions away, but to be fixed upon in our affections and our focus a concern for the one thing that matters most, the one thing that's at the center of the unfolding of world history, which is Christ building his church, and to pour our efforts and our concern into that. There is grace for growth in that. The Lord is in the business of changing our hearts. That's what he does. We must work at it in faith, but the Lord changes our hearts. Let's ask him to do that. Lord, we are thankful for your word, for we need it. We would not know what to do. We wouldn't know what direction to go, who we ought to be, what we ought to believe. Apart from it, surely you have revealed yourself in nature, and yet we would, with our darkened minds, stumble in the dark trying to make sense of you from that alone. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for all of the ways in which you reveal yourself to us, all of the ways in which you call us to transformation and lay out the expectations, what it is we are to be transformed into. We thank you, Lord, for this example, for having preserved this for us that we might have insight. And I pray for all of us. We are at, there's a threat before us right now, the threat James talks about in chapter one, the threat that we would look into the mirror and walk away and forget what we have seen or even remember what we've seen, but then never see that come full circle to the transformation of our own motives. And so I pray, Lord, that you would do the work that only you can do through your spirit in all of our hearts, mine included, to continue to transform our motives 
that we would be pleasing to you and useful to your bride. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.